0: I really want to thank you, and you're doing some great work, and I'm really, I'm really proud that I can call you a friend.
1: So, thank you. There goes John. He's just going to fanboy out on us again.
0: Like, yeah, I am. I
1: am. <laughs> I have none of those feelings towards you, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> um, not,
2: that's totally
1: fine. Totally, I, I hold you in in utter contempt. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> well, you're not
2: alone. You're not alone. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last two thousand years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is
0: not church with john and nat Turney. well hello everybody and welcome back to the podcast today we are um just ecstatic to have with us keith giles keith giles is the best-selling author of the jesus un series including his newest jesus unforsaken he has appeared on cnn usa today buzzfeed and john Fugel sayings tell me everything after leaving full-time ministry over 11 years ago to start a house church that gave everything away to the poor, Keith and his wife recently moved to El Paso to embark on their next venture with Peace, Peace Catalyst International. Keith is also the co-host of the Heritage Happy Hour podcast and a new podcast. Uh, it's, I believe it's the Peace Catalyst podcast, correct? Yes. Uh Keith Keith also teaches several online courses, including Square One from Deconstruction to Reconstruction and other courses based on many of his books. So welcome, Keith. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Wow. Thank you guys, John. Matt, thank you so much. I uh glad to be here. Excited to uh to be on your podcast. This is really cool.
0: Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, Nat started this a little bit ago and I'm going to, I'm going to keep it going. So we, uh, we always get you guys' bios and then we do a, a personal bio about you from us. So I'm just going to, it's going to be quick, but, uh, I just wanted to explain a little bit to everybody how I met Keith. And honestly, I, I don't exactly know where, we met, per- we have never met personally, but um, as I was going through what I didn't know was called deconstruction, because I started this like 30 years ago, I started looking for different places to connect with people who have like minded. And I found through jumping through podcast to podcast to podcast, I found the Heretic Happy Hour pretty pretty late in it, but I, I played catch up pretty quick and uh, started reaching out to you guys. And Keith is someone who has been just gracious uh, willing to answer questions, responds to posts. I mean, he's, he's a busy guy. You can tell by the list of books he has, but he's a busy guy, but he definitely makes time to make you feel important too. And I really appreciate that. And you're definitely a big part of my deconstruction and moving forward in all of this. So I really want to thank you and you're doing some great work and I'm really, I'm really proud that I can call you a friend. So thank you.
2: Oh, thank you so much. That's good to hear, man.
1: There goes John. He's just going to fanboy out on us again. Like, yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> I have none of those feelings towards you, Keith. Um, <laughs> you know
2: that's
1: totally fine. I hold you in in utter contempt. And, uh, <laughs> no, <I'm> just, <laughs>
2: well, you're not alone. You're not
1: alone. <laughs> one thing. One thing I love about you, man, is you have um, you have a lot of haters. Um, that's not that's not what I love about you. Although I do. I do take some solace in the fact that a nice guy like you can have haters. If Brad uh-huh. Jerset can have haters, so can you, right? Yes. Which is still shocking to me, but um, it makes me feel less alone. What I do appreciate, though, is um, how you handle those those folks. I've never met somebody or been aware of somebody so willing to entertain their interlocutors as you are. And that actually speaks very highly of you. A lot of people want to say their piece peace and run. Um, I've seen you actively offer yourself to argue and, and not argue, but debate and discuss and, and be gracious right, and yeah. kind in the process. So that's, that's, that's not hard. That's not easy. That's a difficult thing. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is personally very hurtful. Sometimes I've seen some vitriolic stuff that makes me want to get off Facebook forever.
2: Yeah. That, that whole thing too. Um, I've, I've definitely learned and grown in that area over time, you know, early on you know, several years ago when I first started blogging, and a lot of it was my own fault. Like I would intentionally write posts on purpose to piss people off because I thought you had to do that to get people's attention. But then I figured out, you know, all I'm really doing is pissing people off. That's really all <laughs> I'm doing. And so uh, I shifted away from that. And um, and then the thing that, that I really started learning in this, you know, like you mentioned, like someone will make a comment on Facebook, let's say. And then they, and it becomes an attack on me personally and all that. And And it's, you know. I don't know these people, and they don't know me, right? So, but over time, what I figured out was, um, it wasn't even so much about that specific person as it was the fact that I realized how many people were watching to see how I interacted with that person. Because a couple of times I would interact with somebody, and I would, you know, have grace for them, and. Um, try to try to help them really really think through what you know whatever the issue was and then i would get privately people would privately message me and say wow keith I, I, that was really impressive or like wow that was really important you know, how you responded to blah 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 and i'm like oh like cuz you know what i mean you get focused on it's just me and this guy me and this other person but then when other people come to you and say hey that really made an impression on me the way you took time with this person and you didn't respond you know in an angry way and i'm like oh yeah, that is true. So being aware of that, it makes a big difference. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's helped me over time to realize, uh, I'm, in other words, you're having this conversation in front of everybody. So it's also important then to have, you know, people are looking to see how you respond to those kinds of things. So, and I got to say, can I also say, one of the other reasons why responding graciously has been really good too, is that, not a lot, but I mean, I could, I mean, Joe Chadburn is one specific person. I know him by name. But there's been several people who initially have argued with me and attacked me and even unfollowed me and unfriended me. And no kidding, they'll come back a few months later and re-friend me or, or send me a private message and say, you know, Keith, I want to really apologize. I thought about what you said. I went and studied because I was so upset about, you know, uh, to trying to win this argument with you. And then I realized, oh, you were right about that. and uh, And I'm sorry. And so... When when people actually do have a change of heart, then it's even more important to like, Okay, that's that's another good reason to respond with some grace, because, you know, in a couple of months, they might be coming back and saying, oops, (laughs) So you know, in the hopes that somebody could change.
1: I had I had a similar experience, only in the negative sense. I grew up with a father who really valued the English language. So John and I learned at a very early age that words were powerful. Uh, So I can argue. And I mm-hmm. can be very dismissive, and I can, I can, you know, anyway. So, oh, I, I can't the, the experience I've had <laughs> is where I've felt the need to defend a position so much so that I have been unkind. And then I've gotten yeah. private messages from people not in the conversation saying, Man, I thought you were nicer than this. I'm really, yeah. and, and it undercuts and undermines what you have to say when people don't think it comes from a place of genuine care. That's one of the things that I appreciate about people like you and people like Brad, and there's others who, who managed to say things that from somebody more acerbic would be dismissed just for the tone of it. And then all of a sudden you come back and go, yeah, but this is coming from a place of of palpable care and genuine concern. As much as I love David Bentley Hart, I feel like he falls into this trap sometimes of being so clever, so
2: condescending. condescending.
1: (laughs) I'm the smartest guy in the room by so much. And I agree with like so much of what he says, but I can see from somebody who wants to maybe be taken along and being persuaded that they're not.
2: Yeah, I do. I know what, here's the thing. I love David Bentley Hart so much and I'm really blessed. I'm really blessed. He's actually been pretty gracious to me. I've been able to email him and he'll respond to me. And so that I really appreciate that. Yeah. But I got to say, somebody, somebody had this comment about David and I hope this is okay to say this. I think he would probably laugh at it (laughs) himself. Somebody, somebody said David Bentley Hart is, um, is someone who is like uh, he's he's like five times smarter than anybody else in the room, but he thinks he's ten times smarter. Oh
0: wow! <laughs> and I was like,
2: yeah, that's that's probably a little bit. But you know, um, I, I want to get back to the other thing you were saying about like because um, you reminded me of something about the arguing. You know, like I, I can argue too, man, and I definitely, like I said, I it, it's uh, it's a, it's a discipline to resist that urge. But but you know, when that square one course that I'm that I lead, which is helping people go through deconstruction into reconstruction. One of the first things that we talk about is that um, while, as we're deconstructing our theology, I think one of the most important things we should deconstruct is our need to be right. Because if, we are, if we're not careful, so let's say, for example, you know, I used to believe in eternal torment. Now I don't anymore. Now I believe in universal reconciliation. And so I've changed my, I've deconstructed my theology from, from one thing to another thing. But if I'm just as dogmatic, if I'm still focused on proving I'm right and you're wrong and you're stupid and I understand it and you don't, what have I really done? Like, I would rather have someone who's humble and wrong than someone who's right and an asshole. And so, you know what I mean? Like we have – and here's the other reason why it's important, I think, to deconstruct the need to be right um, is that that's part of – the really part of the system – that we're deconstructing or we should be deconstructing from because in other words the, the reason the system the religion the doctrine whatever the reason why people reject us because we question is because the, they're assuming that it's all about having the right information it's about being right and we should say no it's not about being right It's it's about not information but transformation and if you can make that subtle shift and it doesn't mean I don't think I'm right of course I do I wouldn't you know I wouldn't think this but it's like But um, but then but if you can make that shift from the need to be right, um, then then the stakes change when you're in a comment war with somebody, you know, a disagreement with somebody, let's say on Facebook. Because now my concern is not proving that I'm right. My concern is really helping them see something they don't see. Right. I really care about them. I want them to get it. Uh I don't want them to suddenly go, Keith was right. Like, right. like yay, Keith won. Yes. Like you need I, that uh, ego boost, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's just been really helpful in my own life as well. And just helping and now helping other people to see like that's a difficult thing to do, but to get over the need to be right.
1: Well, and there's a galaxy of difference between I think I'm right. Or I wouldn't write this book, right? Why you sure, would never? Why would you ever put this stuff out there if you didn't think you were right? Um, but right. there's a there's a huge difference between I think I'm right and hey, this is the way it is. So there's this element of of arrogant certainty that says, "Hey, allow me yes. to show you something." One of those the one of the most visceral reactions that I have to anybody who wants to argue is that kind of statement, like, "Oh well, you know, you just don't see this." Okay, well someday yeah. you'll see it, or I'll pray for you that your oh, eyes yeah. will be opened. Yeah. And I'm like. And then I'm, yeah. now I'm now we're done. Cause you and me aren't going to, you know, it's like, we're not going to agree on that.
0: Yeah. All right. Or you get the, uh, well, you're just, you're just coming from your feelings, right? You don't, you, oh, ha- yeah. you haven't yeah. done any research. You don't know what you're talking about. This is all your feelings. Maybe you should
1: read the Bible, John. Maybe you should read the Bible.
0: <laughs> well, that's funny. You should say that. I
1: should
0: try yeah. that. Man, because, man. Uh, <laughs> my issue was uh, I got really good at using the Bible against the people who were using the Bible against me. Right. I, you know if they want to if they want to pick a verse and throw it at me I could pick a verse and throw it right back at them and about a year ago that's right. that's what I had to stop doing and I actually gave up the Bible for Lent so uh, which <laughs> ended up being uh, yeah. gave up the Bible for a year and uh, um, yeah. and then that's what turned into my blog which is uh, was basically getting a person alone with God without a Bible and what kind of conversations could they have so yeah, yeah. I mean I totally understand okay. how we can. You, you can get into that place where you you want to be right. You want to show them that you know better than they do, and then the conversation just ends. There, there's just no more. There's just no conversation.
2: Yeah, and see, there's there's this thing that we should there's a there's a really good benefit to deconstruction if if we can receive it. And I think this is the, what we're talking about because the act of deconstruction should convince you um, that you can be wrong about something.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: I, in fact, i what I'm saying when I'm deconstructing is I was wrong, right? And I've been wrong before. And I don't know, I'm probably wrong about some things right now. I'll be wrong in the future. So then it should give you this level of humility of, well, you know, right now, I really think this, I believe, I think, you know, right, right now, I'm convinced of whatever I'm convinced of, but I'm open, you know, the, the side is hardened. Uh, I'm holding this as loosely, I, I'm open to other ideas. But what I'm, you know, but, but if someone's, like, trying to get me to go back to something that I've already thought it through and, and rejected, well, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I can't unlearn or unsee, uh, you know, what I've seen. So, no, I'm not going to change my mind back to the other thing. Uh, I moved on from there.
1: You don't want to get plugged back into the Matrix?
2: No, no, I don't want to be like, uh, <laughs>
1: be like you know, the guy. That. I forget the guy's name. I need to have his name yeah, memorized because like, I bring it cipher. up. Cypher? Cypher. It was Cypher, yeah. Well, he's like
0: and- – I think this kind of dovetails really good into into your books, um, and which is I think I think you do a really good job of the way you write. Is it is academic, but it's not academic. I mean, there's there's information there that obviously took you some time to put together and compile, and that part that's what I mean by academic. But it reads so much easier or better than a book, an academic book. Uh, you, you kind of remind me in this, in a, in a kind of a weird way, like in Stephen Hawking's books, you know, he wrote some very intellectual stuff, but I could understand it. I understood where he was coming from. And that's what I really like about your books. And I, and, um,
2: I would just want to say, thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Cause honestly, that is my goal. So when you, when, when you say that, I feel like mission accomplished, <laughs> like, because, um, that's, that's exactly what I want to do. Like it frustrated me. I, I was a philosophy major in, uh, in college uh, or sorry, not major, minor in college. And, um, I, I remember sometimes reading some of these philosophy books, you know, Hegel and Kierkegaard and right. Kant and all these guys. And I sometimes would read up one paragraph like 20 times slowly, like thinking it through until I finally, Oh, Oh, I okay. I understand it. And then I would go, Oh, he just means dot, dot, dot. I'm like, why didn't he just say that? Obviously, a smart person, he could just simplify it, right? It's almost like, so that feeling that sometimes philosophy and theology is written by people, like going back to David Bentley Hart, that are super smart, and it's almost like they're trying to impress other smart people, like their peers, you know what I mean? And uh, whereas maybe that's okay for, for that level, or they're talking to other academics. But it's not very helpful for the average person who would really benefit from knowing this. Like, So that's always been my goal, is to take some of these I think sometimes unnecessarily complicated ideas and bring them down to the average person because I think that's what needs to happen. They, these are ideas and concepts that the average person needs to understand primarily because these are the questions they're asking, right? They're wondering, well, they're noticing this doesn't make sense or this, this I can't understand how this and this makes sense. And, and their pastors aren't able to answer their questions or, or just refuse to because how dare you question something. So it's sort of like you're stuck, right? So this is you know, on purpose on my books that's exactly what I'm trying to do is do the research simplify it put it in everyday ordinary language in ways that the average person can understand it. So that that is what I'm trying to do anyway.
1: Good deal. Yeah. It it it's, it reminds me of um someone like Douglas Campbell who I love and respect yeah. and I it has taken me a year to get through the deliverance of God. Yeah. Thankfully he saw fit to write some you know, some books that were more aimed at the layperson. And, and, and part of that is you, you you bear in mind their audience. You know, I, I realize Doug's writing for an academic audience. And so he has peers to, to, but he has so much good stuff to say. I don't want it wasted on the academics, you know, because yes. what he's talking about has real rubber meets the road implications for how we read Paul and for how we treat um, uh, people in the LGBTQ community, you know, or we take the yeah. clobber passages from Paul. And he's got a very good, interesting take on on how we have actually done violence to paul's texts by assuming they're always his words yeah and so oh, all that stuff is great and then i have to run to the dictionary every third sentence <laughs> to go okay hang on a second what is um what is prosopopoia again yeah. let's look yeah, that yeah, word Yeah. know what is you know soteriology and on you know all these things that you know yeah yeah, yeah. So.
2: But man, so so just like the prosopopoeia thing, man. But but once you get it, and once you can, someone that can show it to you, and you understand it, it just it opens up the whole thing, and you're like, oh my gosh, Romans make so much sense now. Right,
1: right. <laughs> I mean, there's so much there that I'm like, I used to read through Romans and go, man, Paul is just a borderline schizophrenic. Yes. <laughs> Like, let, he right? Like, he, like he's here and he's there and he's grace and he's law and he's law and he's grace and he's oh my gosh! And then he's and then you start to <laughs> I start to hear it as the dialogue as Doug Campbell and others, not just him, but others have proposed. And I go, "What shall we say then? Shall we sin so that grain will?" Yeah. No, absolutely not! And then you have this whole like oh! And then I imagine somebody standing in front of one of those churches and reading this letter and voicing the yes. the voice of the false teacher, like he does in Ephesians and in Galatians, and and you know. There's all this back and yeah. forth and you go, oh man, we have flattened this text out so much and we've just pulled out the pieces we like, yeah. fashioned them into swords and then sliced and diced the people we didn't like already. All it did was, all it did was, you know, fortify our own preconceived notions anyway. And yeah, so, exactly. anyway, your books do that. that that's, that's where I got off on that train was, it reminds me of that. And he writes does similar things. He writes these very heady academic books and then also writes yeah. you know, books yeah. for lay people. Um, we don't agree on a ton, but um, I,
2: I respect him for that. So <laughs> I, I really appreciate NT Wright. You know, but here's what I'd say about NT Wright. Like, I read his book. Uh, the last of his books that I read was "The Day the Revolution Began." It's about the cross, and I really like the. I like that book a lot. But the frustrating thing for me is that I feel it, it feels to me like there are things that NT Wright would would admit to if you closed the door and turned off the microphone, exactly. across, the and then he would just look you in the eye and say, yeah, that's yeah. nonsense. Yeah. That's all crap. That. Yeah. But it feels like he, he has to sort of dance around certain things. He doesn't want to offend certain people. Um, and so that's, that's the gist that I get. I quote him in my book a couple of times because I, I ran across some interviews he did where, you know, he, man, he, he kind of came out and, and like specifically about penal substitution uh, I was like, well, that was really good. But even even sometimes, even as he's critiquing penal substitution, he's also still trying not to offend people, right? Not that the goal is to offend people, you know what I'm saying? But it's like, it feels like he's he's afraid to just go all the way and just firmly take a stand uh, and put himself in a certain, you know, category.
0: Yeah, he reminds me, I... I, I... I consider him like a modern day C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Uh, I think I think if you were, you know, back in the day, I think if you were to get C.S. Lewis alone and no one, and you weren't writing anything down and he was able to just talk to you, I think you would be shocked at some of his beliefs. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I think he just didn't want to write it down.
1: But where do you get C.S. Lewis's most radical thoughts? I, I actually quoted C.S. Lewis today in a Facebook post where he speaks about the Bible and Jesus alone being the word of God, not the Bible. Yeah, That's not in any of his books. It's in a letter he wrote to somebody. So in his personal correspondence, he can say, yeah, no, I don't see it that way. You know, um, reminds yes. me of, you know, so many of these guys who, you know, Greg Boyd's a good example, and I love Greg Boyd. Yes. Trying very hard to stay within a framework, not a biblical inerrancy, because I don't think Boyd's an inerrantist, but divine inspiration. So he's not going to back away from an inspiration um, but and so some would take him to task for that and say, well, you're trying to have it both ways. Um I've seen that N- uh, That dovetails into my question for you about N.T. Wright. Um, so, Mr. Wright, Tom, if I can call you that, if you listen to this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is uh, thrown out there with the utmost respect. But um, yes, in in I believe it was in the day the revolution began, I do believe and maybe other places I've seen this, but N.T. Wright. Does hold to a theory of the atonement that is substitutionary, but not penal. And I want to know if you yeah. thought that was an important enough distinction, and maybe you could present your thoughts on penal substitutionary atonement. And um, I know how you feel about it, but maybe you can articulate that for us.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, I, I and I can see that view. I mean, number one, yeah, let's take punishment out of that out of the equation of the cross. The assumption that what's happening on the cross is God is punishing Jesus because of our sins. That, that's the part of it that, yeah, that's that's a little um, problematic. I don't think that, and I go through my book and I try to demonstrate this, that I don't think God's primary response to our sins is wrath or punishment uh, at all. So I think that that's a good idea to kind of let's just back off from that and say, no, it's not about Punishment. There is a sense in which, and I I, I did have a conversation with Brad Jerzek about this, and he was very helpful to me in in writing this book as well. Um, trying to think through some of these things, there there is a sense in which Jesus was a substitute, but it's very subtle, and it's and it gets conflated with, unfortunately, um, all of our sort of Old Testament ideas of a sacrifice or a scapegoat or these kind of things, which again. Scripture, New Testament, does not affirm. We assume it does, but it actually doesn't do that. Even in Hebrews, when it's saying things like, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, it's ta- it's saying that under the law, that was the... But then it's saying that was the bad, the, the defective covenant. Uh, that, that So that because it was defective, we needed a better and a new covenant. And therefore, under the new covenant with Christ... There is a better system and a better plan that is not about blood or, you know, sacrifice or any of these kinds of things. So I, I think I say in the preface to this book, Unforsaken, Jesus Unforsaken, that there's a one of the reasons why this is like the sixth book in the series is that this topic of the crucifixion and the atonement and all that is probably, I, to me anyway, it feels like advanced physics compared to like, you know, uh, mathematics, you know, one on one or something, because it's so difficult, and, and there's so much. I want to say programming we have received through the church about what's happening on the cross. It's really challenging to talk about it without people just automatically going to these assumptions about the cross. Right? We do kind of have this this kind of archaic and primitive idea that really come from penal substitution, like the the penal substitutionary atonement theory. I would, I think has done a number on Christians now where it's almost impossible to read the scriptures, to read anything about the crucifixion or the incarnation or the resurrection or the atonement without just filling in the blanks with, with, with words and meaning that aren't there.
1: Right. It was one of those things that for me was foundational because from that piece, from that domino falling, so much other stuff fell. If I can imagine a God who would do that, well, then it's not that big of a leap to jump to some other things that yeah. we might ascribe to God and say he would do that. Brian Zahn did a really good debate thing back. Yeah, you am know, that's actually, I think the first place I became aware of Brian Zahn was his monster God debate that he did with uh, Dr. Michael Brown. Oh my gosh. Just anyway. And one of those things was he, he says, he, and I've used this a ton and I've done what preachers do. I've, you know, was, I've attributed it to him a couple times and you know how that goes. Right. And, that, and then,
2: then after a while it becomes yours, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's like uh Brian Zahn said this. Second time it's, I've, I've heard it said this. And the, the, the third time it's like, I've always said,
2: um, <laughs> that's, so. that's the pattern. That's exactly what
1: right. he, he, he gives us example. And I think, I think this ties in. So, of uh, so if this theory of the atonement where God, never mind, forget the justice part of it. The unjustness of punishing an innocent person for me is I mean, that, that, that's just still that I would enjoy that, or or t- it's, it's terrible, um, that I would think that that's some, somehow justice. But it would have to rewrite the prodigal son story ending, right? Where the father would say, you know, the, the parable would say, you know, and while he was a long way off, the father saw the son and he ran toward him. But before he got there, he stopped off at the slave quarters, beat the hell out of an unsuspecting servant. And when his wrath was satiated, he embraced his son. And so... Talk about that as far as what it means for us, what it what does that imply for us about the nature and the heart of God that that he would need that in order to offer forgiveness?
2: right, and that and yeah, I love that by the way, that whole monster God debate is is so good uh, and that's exactly right. I think the um, I've said this many times that if if all we had of the teachings of Jesus, if all we had was the, was that prodigal son parable, I think that would be enough. I think it is so. I, th- I think we 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 um, we don't understand, right? We we sort of uh, under underestimate how radically powerful that prodigal son parable is, because it does give, it does destroy all of our notions of of who God is and how God responds to us right, and, and our failures or sinfulness, however we want to say that. And I think that's exactly why Jesus told it, right? So he's giving us this picture of, you know, the, a parable where God is the father, you know, the the, the son uh, insults him, you know, in the worst possible ways, goes off and squanders his inheritance. And again, the, the father's response, he doesn't even know, that the son is rehearsing. So again, if we, if, we're, if we put ourselves in the prodigal son, right, the son is rehearsing, this, this, um, this, uh, you know, when he comes back, I'm going to tell my dad, uh, I don't deserve to be your son. So we, we already know ahead of time the script that he's preparing to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. You know, um, I'm, I no longer am worthy to be called your son. Let me just serve as a servant, you know, as one of your servants. So the father sees him, runs out to him, grabs him, embraces him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe around him. And, and, and the son starts off with his memorized speech. Father, and he just cuts him off. He doesn't even let him get to the part about how I don't to be, you know, I don't deserve to be called your son. he just does nope, cuts him off. Let's have a big party. And so that is such a beautiful, powerful picture of of a God who does not respond with wrath. And so here is the other part again, the most important part of that story, the parable. Um, the only person in that parable who demands justice, who demands payment, is the older brother. It's not the father. And so, again, when, when we are the ones who, who's, who demand, well, no, there has to be payment. I've uh, even had people flat out tell me, you know, like, it bothers them, this idea that God is love and that uh, everyone will be eventually reconciled to God in the end, um, because it just seems like there should be justice. It seems like that, you know, there's no justice for sin. And so I, I usually will say to them, oh, oh, I, I get it. So what you mean is that when you die, what you're really hoping is that God takes you and puts you in the lake of fire for like a couple of hundred years and really roasts you good. And then it takes you out and then brings you into heaven. Oh, no, 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 not me. No, no, no. I'm, I'm <laughs> covered in the blood of Christ. I'm just going to walk in free and loved and accepted by and embrace Jesus. He's going to love me. I mean, those other people. Ah, uh, yeah, see, now we're getting closer to what's wrong. What bothers us is it's not me receiving mercy. It's those other people receiving mercy. Now, who am I? I'm the older brother who refuses to go into the party because, Dad, I can't believe, look what you're doing. I can't believe you would do such a thing, right? So I think that, again, that's why I think that parable is so beautiful and so powerful. It gives us a beautiful picture of who God is, how God responds to uh, us and our sins and our failures, Um, not with wrath, not with punishment. You know, he doesn't need his pound of flesh. Uh, He just forgives. This is the radical thing. This is the radical picture. If you know, if Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay, I'm going to look at Jesus if I, to see the Father. And what I see Jesus doing is forgiving people automatically. People walk up to him before they even say a word. Your sins are forgiven. Now what do you want? Um, they don't even ask him for forgiveness. I don't think there's any place anyone even says, Jesus, please forgive me. He just, you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then, then what do you want, right? Even more crazy, he never forgives sins after the cross. He always forgave. All, all the examples of Jesus saying your sins are forgiven are before the cross. So, again, it's not that the cross was needed so that we could be forgiven. We were already pronounced forgiven. God's response was already forgiveness. Um, the, the blood and this, the, the, uh, the punishment, quote unquote, of Jesus on the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross is not something that was needed for us to be forgiven. Right.
1: It was always ever our idea. Wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. The whole sacrificial system, the entire sacrificial system, was, was our idea.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, there's scripture after scripture where God is, you know, explicitly anti-sacrifice. Like, right. I don't want to. Yeah. It never entered my mind. Yes. You know, and so um, yeah, We can it's, get
2: it. And I think in Isaiah, like uh, this, I never, com- I never gave any commands when you left Egypt yeah. about doing this. I'm like, well, well, wait. Well, Moses said you did, but yeah. uh, God's right. like, well, right. it hmm. wasn't yeah. me. I didn't want that. You wanted that. See, again. That primitive, the primitive cultures, we go. Way, we're going way, way back, right? This is this is the primitive way of thinking, right? So you know, something bad has happened. There's a plague. There's a famine. Something you know, the, our enemies defeated us in battle. Some bad thing happened. Well, why why did this happen? Well, you know what? Our gods must not like us. They're angry at us. Well, you know what? We we need to take something innocent, and uh, and we need to kill it and burn it. And that'll make the God happy and then everything will be good. That's a very primitive way of thinking like worshipers of Baal and Molech and, you know, all these people thought this way. And so that was already there, right? This is partly, I think, why um, we have this whole thing with Abraham, right? God has to show Abraham, hey, Abraham, that's not who I am. I'm not like all these other gods who are going to ask you to take your son and, and lay him on the altar. That's not who I am. I don't, that's not how I work.
1: But Abraham never questions that either.
2: No, no. I I, well, I question whether or not you know. I know it's told in the it's the the way the story is told in the Old Testament. It's God telling Abraham to do it. I wonder if it's Abraham assuming this is what God wants. And God, then when God, we never hear God speak. I would I would say in that story until God says Abraham, stop. Like that's now when he's getting ready to do it. Right? That's God. Well, stop. Hold on, Abraham. What are you doing here? But anyway, that's 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 a whole other conversation. But I, I just don't think this is who God is.
1: That's an interesting take. I need to go back and look at that. That's that's awesome. I've always wondered. You know, I, I told I told my pastor once, and he did not enjoy this, by the way. <laughs> but I I I asked him once, what if what if Abraham had just said no? You know, if God did in fact say, take your son onto the mountain, sacrifice him to me, and blah blah, and Abraham was Abraham was like, nah. And God might've said like, okay, exactly. Now we can avoid the next 2000 years of bullcrap theology <laughs> right? because you've actually already got what I need to tell you, which is I don't need any of that.
2: Right. You know, right. No, that and- would have been great if God had just said, all right, Abraham, good, good <laughs> yeah. for you. You got it. Sweet.
1: Yeah, it's it's the same question I have for people who who exalt the, the you know, the concept of free will above everything, you know, as though it's inviolate, you know. Yeah. Yes. And so I'm like, well, okay, so at the end of days when, when God separates the sheep from the goats and he tells me to go to hell, what if I just say no?
2: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Is he <laughs> going to violate my free will? Okay, that's irreverent and tongue in cheek. But it does beg these questions. When you deal in absolutes, when you deal in, you know, you've painted God in such a, you know, with such broad strokes and into a corner that 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 you just man you, you you pull all the possibilities out you know and so how when you were talking about um you know our need for sacrifice and when we read a text and I wanted to ask you about this because so much of where we derive our concept of penal substitution right comes out of what i would think is a misreading of isaiah um and a lot of misappropriation of the suffering servant but so much of what we think about sacrifices baked in that when we come to a text like that, we we come to it with that in mind. Yeah. So what is your take on, you know, because most evangelicals will tell you that the suffering servant in in Isaiah 53 uh, bless Jesus. Yeah. Do you think so?
2: Well, I do, but uh, here's the problem. I'm going to, you know, let me look it up here. Because I, I think um, what we need to do is, I, when I cover this in the book, which is the difference between the Septuagint and the,
1: um, and the LXX. Yeah. Huge difference by the way. Right.
2: So, yeah, this is, cause you're right. This is one of these first sort of like, uh, automatic responses that you get when, whenever you talk the way we're talking right now and trying and critiquing this penal substitution, uh, atonement. So people will quote Isaiah 53, 10, for example, where in your English translation, yours and mine, <laughs> English translation of, of the text in Isaiah 53 reads this way. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So, in again, the way our, our English Bible is translated, um, it's the Lord's will to crush him. This is Jesus. And so it's God, it's the Father's, it pleased the Lord to crush Jesus and to cause Jesus to suffer. Um, and it's God who makes Jesus an offering for sin. So the the problem with that, and I go through this in the book and I give multiple examples of the difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. So the Masoretic text is what we have in our English Bibles. And I don't understand why it's, I, I need to figure this out. It's kind of a mystery to me how this ended yeah, up happening. Yeah, me too. But just real quick, a real quick history lesson. Um, the Masoretic text with the one that we have in our English Bibles today was one that came Several hundred years after Jesus, and it was specifically by Talmudic Jews who wanted to discredit Christianity and who specifically went in and found and scrubbed references to the Messiah who, that looked like it was Jesus and tweaked it to discredit Christianity. Now, so of course we put that in our English or Christian Bibles, right? Yeah, of, of course. What? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't think, I, I mean, when you figure, when you learn that, it's sort of like, are you kidding me? So, the Septuagint is an older uh, version, uh, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. And by the way, the Septuagint is what Jesus quoted. It's what Paul quotes. there if you you might even run across this if you've done a Bible study in the Gospels, when Jesus will quote um, an Old Testament text, Isaiah Jeremiah, and and so in in our in the New Testament, you'll read Jesus quoting it. and it's if you go and look back at your Bible, it's sometimes slightly different or, or sometimes radically different. Like, why is it different? Well, because in the New Testament, and Paul does the same thing, uh, what we have is a record of them quoting the Septuagint. It, so the Septuagint is literally the, the Old Testament scripture that Jesus and Paul read and quoted from. Now, so now check this out. Before it was altered by by the Jews, right? Post Post-Jesus. So now let's go to the Septuagint and read that same passage Isaiah 53:10 again listen so real quick the, the the masoretic we just read said that it was God's will God was pleased the father was pleased to crush him and it was God's will to cause him to suffer and God was the one who made Jesus the sacrifice the offering okay now look at now let's read this the, the uh, Septuagint. it says the lord is willing to cleanse him or heal him of the injury if you make a sin offering. Our soul will see long-lived offspring and the Lord will, is willing to remove from him the difficulty of his soul or to rescue him, right? So, wow, what a radically different picture. And in, in the Septuagint, it, the father is, is on the side of the Messiah. He's comforting him. Um, he's cleansing him of his injuries. He's healing him of his injuries. If you, if or we, are the ones who make him a sin offering, that's more accurate. That is what was happening on the cross, right? It's not the father who's driving the nails. We're the ones driving the nails, right? We're the ones who who have bought into this idea of, a, of, of this wrathful God needing a sacrifice and blood in order to forgive us. It's not God. He's not the one doing that. So um, that is, once you see that, once you recognize that, wow, our Bibles, unfortunately, um, have scriptures that, that support a a doctrine that's kind of toxic and kind of goes against what Jesus has shown us. um, It's helpful to see that. Like, once you know that, then you should be able to go, okay, hang on a second. What else in my Bible (laughs) uh, is it, is it really being square with me? Right. There's some other things going on. And, and unfortunately that is the case. There are uh, other examples.
1: Yeah. It was interesting to me because uh, my pastor and I, a pastor I used to work for, Several years ago, working on a sermon together, we're writing the sermon, and there's a place where Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage. And we did exactly that. Like, we always want to check, almost oh, on a cross-reference, hey, let's read it in the original, let's see what, and they were wildly different. Yes. It was, in fact, it was so wildly different that I emailed Eugene Peterson, because we, we were using the message version, and I emailed Eugene, and I'm like, hey, bro, you got to explain this to me what did you do here? I think I preface it with like, I know you are a highly regarded, I know you're a scholar's scholar. I'm yeah. not impugning you. I'm not, ask, I'm just, I just need you to explain it because I don't get it. Uh, sadly, he never responded yeah. and then he passed away. So when I see him in heaven, wherever that is, I'll be like, yo, you never <laughs> answered my email, Eugene, first of all. Um, oh, uh, oh, you're too busy being you two's personal pastor to, to uh, <laughs> you know, answer my email. But, it's fascinating to me that, that both he and I who have had, you know, we've had formal theological and pastoral training, the the thought of the Septuagint never entered our heads.
2: Yeah. You know, can I give you, can I give you, I want to give you a couple more examples because the, the, um, the, the radical, I'm just looking here at, at my book again and I give a couple of examples and I'm like, and they're so radically different. I mean, it's, it's, it's a crime. I literally, after I, after I saw this, I went out and bought a, a, a Septuagint. You can't get a, a copy of the Septuagint of the Old Testament because it's like, I don't want to read this stuff anymore in my Bible. Um, so like the Masoretic, so again, going back to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 4, in the Masoretic says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God, and afflicted. The Septuagint says, this one, now speaking of the Messiah, this one carries our sins and suffers pain for us, and we regarded him as one who is in difficulty, misfortune, and affliction. It doesn't say anything about God in that. Right.
1: God, right. God isn't
2: doing any of the afflicting. God right. isn't doing any of the punishing. There's not the word punishment isn't even in there. Um, and then in the Masoretic, it says the Lord, this is radical. In the Masoretic, this is Exodus 15 3. It says, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So again, we have this picture of God as a a violent warrior God. But in the Septuagint, it says the Lord who shatters wars, the Lord is his name. Wow. Now in the Septuagint, in the Septuagint version, God is one who destroys war. He goes to war against war. That's not a violent God. That's not a warrior God. That's a God who hates war and destroys war. Oh my gosh! It's like it's such a radical difference. These changes and shifts that were made. So anyway, yeah, it's um, it's definitely worth doing a little more digging in some of these things, and so not to take everything at face value. Well, right. Going back even to the thing about prosopopeia, this is the this is the the real you know difficulty sometimes in under making sense of the Bible is that it's not as simple, unfortunately, as just flipping open your English Bible and pointing to to a verse and saying, "See." The Bible says right here. Yeah, your English translation might say that, but is that really what was intended? Does it really mean that? There's been so much tweaking and changing and things that have gone on, or even just misunderstanding. Like if you don't understand prosopopeia, you could flip around to Romans and say right here, Paul says blank. Yeah, but is that Paul? Or is that the teacher of the law that he's about to refute a few verses later? And again, but you don't, if you don't know, that's what's going on. It's really confusing. And so I have sympathy for people who do embrace some of these things or even just their pastors from the pulpit are preaching something and they look in their Bible. Well, yeah, my Bible does say that. So it's really difficult to like, what am I supposed to do? Even if I don't, even if I'm not comfortable with some of this teaching, well, what can I say? Right. It's really difficult to know where do I go?
0: I was, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, cause I, I, I think you're going to agree with this. And I, you know, as I as I talk about penal substitutionary atonement and my no longer believing in it, it seems like one of the biggest questions that comes up, I'd say every time, is, well, if God wasn't putting his wrath on Jesus on the cross to save us from our sins, then what was the reason that Jesus had to die? Yeah. And it's a it's a hard question to answer, especially because, The people that are asking it are so stuck in their dogmatic idea of the wrathful God that they're not ready to let go of the wrathful God. And if God isn't wrathful and if he wasn't pouring his wrath on Jesus to save us and to cover us, then what the hell was the point? And it really starts to destroy their, their own religious base. So how do you answer that question?
2: Yeah, it's a, it is a is. You're right. It's a very difficult one to answer. And again, it, it's because we're pushing back against all these assumptions, right? So in, in the way we've all been taught, you know, Jesus had to die so that we could be forgiven and loved and accepted and saved, quote unquote. So when you say, well, no, that's not at all what's happening. God didn't need blood to love us and forgive us. We were already loved and forgiven. All right. Well, then, okay. Then, if that's true, then why did Jesus need to come and die? Well, okay, that's again, it's a loaded question <laughs> because you're still assuming that his death had to happen, you know to to make some other thing happen. We're still thinking in this sort of formulaic way. this had to happen so that this could happen so so here and again, this, there's so many nuances to it I'll, and I try to cover it in the book i'll try to I'll try to respond to here as well. So the question, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Well, why do you have to die? But think about that for a second. Yeah. Why do you? Why do I have to die? Well, because I'm a human being, exactly. Yeah. So, in other words, when when Philippians chapter two when it says that Christ didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied Himself, took on the form of a servant, became nothing, and took on flesh in the incarnation by more, by immortality, you know, taking on mortality. Uh, well death was assumed automatic it's go- he's going to die God is going to die you know Christ is going to experience death by virtue of the fact that he has now become a, a mortal human being so that's one answer to the question and I, and, and again it seems, it seems in some ways anticlimactic like well yeah but but no really don't seriously meditate on that for a second I want I think we really need to just think about that for a second that I mean, Paul thinks it's significant enough that he says, you know, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, and then he gives us that whole sequence. Okay, so my attitude should be similar to Jesus' attitude because he he let go of immortality, he embraced mortality, and he was willing to die. He was willing to be obedient even to death, and you should too. Well, there's one reason. That, that's a significant reason why Jesus had to die, because he had to be an example for you and I to follow we also should embrace mortality. We also should become, um, you know, we are the incarnation of Christ in the world today as well, right? Because he was, we are. Um, so that's one aspect of it. That's, that's an answer to the question, why did Jesus have to die? Because he became human. And, and so then maybe the question is, then why did he become human? Because maybe that's an even deeper question. See, I think that actually is, that's leading us deeper into the, the answer to the question. Um, when, we, when we act as if it's just about the crucifixion, we kind of miss the, the, the implication of the incarnation. I, it really does start with this incarnation. What's going on in the incarnation? There is something so profound and so deep going on in the incarnation when, when God takes on flesh, when God and humanity experience a union okay? It's not just Jesus in one particular human physical body. We think of it that way. But Paul doesn't think of it that way. Paul Paul conflates this idea and says, because Christ died, we all died. All humanity died. Because Christ resurrected, all humanity has been raised with him. Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, all humanity is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so there's this what's going on in the incarnation is a union between God and all of humanity that so that now Christ can now in his death, you know, put to death all, all, all sin that in his resurrection can resurrect, you know, inject the resurrection power of Christ into all humanity. And, and, uh, and because he ascends, he can, he can uh, bring all humanity into the presence of God. Like, there, there's this thing that's happening in the incarnation that because it's true of Christ in the incarnation, it's now true of all humanity. These are much bigger concepts, right? It's not yep. just about I need some of his blood so I can go to heaven. Right, right.
1: So so much, so much of what we've been taught throughout the course of our lives as, as honestly in my mind. It's been, I've been accused of offering a watered-down gospel before because my <laughs> God is nice. Uh, the the opposite is actually true. <laughs> Um, the, the, the formulaic gospel we've been given is so watered down. Yes. It is so devoid of any hope or power. One of those things that strikes me, um, I can't remember who said it It doesn't, it doesn't matter, I guess, but what's missing from so much of our theology is, is, is some kind of robust anthropology. And so I, I like Gerard because Gerard brings an anthropology to the table that says we have to understand the human origins of some of this stuff rather than always seeking that You know, always understanding that all of this is divinely appointed. And so when we talk about why Christ had to die, I think we framed the question wrong yeah, or or wrongly, I should say, rather than why was it inevitable that he would? Because inevitability is not predetermination. I mean, we all knew it was going to go this way. All right. Uh, Plato knew it was going to go this way. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth, when he said in, in the Republic that if a perfectly upright man ever walked the earth, we'd murder him.
2: That's right. And some translations
1: say we crucify him. That's right. And so we knew this would happen. We hate perfect people. So the inevitable outcome of Jesus' incarnation is he was going to upset enough people that he's going to get killed. But in his death and in his burial and his resurrection, he exposes the principalities and the powers. That's what Gerard would say is that he exposes our violent tendencies. He lays them all out. He lays them bare and mocks and shames them.
2: Yes. Which yeah. is
1: exactly orthodox theology. Is it, it not, is. It's no, not the it Eastern is. church. I mean, you've, oh, death, you've been mocked. You've been shamed. Yeah. And I find that so much better than the triumphalism of the West that says, you know, put a, put a cross on my shield and let's go kill some folks in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then see now the Gerard thing, I have a whole chapter on Gerard that Matthew Zestefano, uh was very kind to help me uh, tweak some of those. Cause to me, he's, he knows way more about Gerard than I do. Um, but, um, Man, I think you're exactly right. I think it's, this is the other sort of facet of the cross. You know, Jesus, and again, scriptures say this, that uh, Jesus, um, when it says he brings an end to sacrifice, part of the way he does that is by exposing that it's wrong, that it's ugly, that it's not a good thing, right? It's, It's saying, yeah, this is a bad system. And so part of the way he does that is it's not God demanding a sacrifice so that his wrath can be satisfied and then we can be forgiven. It's us needing a sacrifice and God submitting himself to our wrath against him and saying, yeah, okay, you know, uh, I'll let you do this to me. And then I'll expose the fact that I, I, you know, I'm completely innocent and you murdered me. And yet my response is not wrath. That's not who I am. It's also saying this is who, who God is. I'm not going to respond with wrath, even if you murder me and I'm completely innocent. And, and your wrath is unjustified against me. You know what? I love you. It's this idea, again, of, of God saying at the cross, not only will I not use my power over you, my extreme, you know, who has more power than God? I, I will let go of my power. I'll empty myself of all power. I have no power at all anymore. In fact, I'm going to give power to you. Do what you want. Do, do your worst to me. You know what I mean? I'll submit to your power over me. I'll let you do whatever you want. And my response to you will be, Father, forgive them. And I'll, and I'll, I'll rise from the dead, breathing peace upon you. And wow. Okay. So th- this is this radical thing that's happening where he, he turns the whole thing upside down, exposes the mechanism, brings an end to it and says, okay, can we move on now? We're done with that. Let, let's move on to, this, to something better. And what I love about what Gerard points out too, this is really amazing to me um and Gerard Gerard totally points this out you know like in the under the old covenant we had these 10 commandments and what the 10 commandments did well in, in a way and this is kind of shocking to many people the 10 commandments are actually shining a light on sort of this mimetic theory right this these wrong desires that we desire we desire wrongly, and we and we mimic the desires of other people. and We desire uh, our you know other things. So I think seven of the Ten Commandments are dealing with "Do not covet your neighbor's blank." Right, and so that's about desiring something that doesn't belong to you, desiring something that is your neighbor's or this other person's. You desire it because they they desire it. And you know don't 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 steal. Why would I steal something? Well, because you got it and I want it. Right. Don't murder. Why would I kill you? Well, because I'm so angry at you. I'm usually over this rivalry and this conflict. Right. So all of these things are related. It all draws back to the fact that we have these wrong desires. Okay. But what what the the Ten Commandments fails to do is it it just says don't do it. I mean, on the the one hand, the good thing is it's it's saying, hey everybody, this is your this is the root of your problem, is this mimetic desire. And you got it and it's a problem and you need to you need to get control of it. But it stops there and just says, Yeah, it's your problem, don't do it. But the problem is we can't not do it. It, or it doesn't tell us how to not do it. It just says don't. What Jesus does, and this is the genius of it, Jesus shows up and he doesn't say, don't have these wrong desires. Don't mimic the desires of other people, okay? Because he kind of knows you're. we can't stop it. Instead, he says, mimic me. Jesus says, if you're going to mimic other people's desires, follow me. Mimic me because I am the only person who doesn't desire anything other than to please the Father. I only want what the Father wants. I only do what pleases the Father. And so now if you redirect your, your mimetic tendencies um, and your desires to, to desire what others desire, if now you direct that towards me, Jesus says, now you will have, one, finally, this is the way you can fulfill the law right? This is the way you can uh, fulfill those 10 commandments. Because if you love God, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and then now your desire is not to take what belongs to your neighbor, your desire is to bless your neighbor. Well, how, what can I, what, what do I have that I could give to my neighbor? Because I see he has a need, I'm concerned for my neighbor's desires. But I only get that if I'm following Jesus, right? If I'm mimicking what he has patterned for me, to follow. That to me is amazing. And, and again, Gerard points this all out, how this is another as another facet of what's happening with Christ and how what Jesus is showing us and how he's giving us a way to uh, and, and so in this way we could say this is one of the ways that Jesus quote unquote saves us from our sins. If our sin is defined as being unable to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus for the first time shows us, well, here's how you can fulfill the law. You know, I'm going to save you from the sin by showing you how to live in a way that you don't live this other way. You live in a way that that pleases God.
1: Right. Well then Paul carries this forward, doesn't he?
2: Yeah. What does Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ. Right. So
1: we're continuing this. So I love that it doesn't deny our natural tendency to be mimetic and to seek out mimetic models. It's so ingrained in our DNA. That's what we're going to do. How do children learn to speak? How do children learn anything? Everything we learn by, by mimicry and by, so, giving us a good model, though, well, there's that, a good enough reason for the incarnation,
2: that's right? right, to that's show exactly us right. what it yeah. means to be truly yeah. human and that's give us right. a
1: good way to actually live within our humanity. So much of what uh, modern evangelical Christianity seems to me to be about is this sort of gnostic notion of transcending my flesh. How do I yeah. how do I become more than human? Well, let's start with being actually human first. You <laughs> right. know, let's see yeah. if we can get that part down. <laughs> And I feel like I feel like Paul. I said actually I said this in a sermon yesterday. I feel like Paul wrestles with this, you know. I, I feel he yes. wrestles with the tension of flesh and spirit, um, and yep. and from that wrestling, we come to conclusions where maybe Paul doesn't. He's still wrestling with the tension of flesh and spirit yep. and what those two things mean and how they're embroiled in, in this you know eternal battle with one another. Uh, whereas Jesus has showed us, I think, or began to show us a way to unite those things. Yes. Yep.
0: Well, also, you know, Jesus is showing us how to bring the kingdom of heaven here, here and yes. now, right? And a lot of the evangelical fundamentalist Christian Western church has spent way too much time on the sweet by and by, yep. the hereafter, the that they ignore what Jesus is telling us to do right here, right now with our fellow human beings, with our fellow, with the fellow humanity, it just seems like we've kind of missed the point in a lot of ways.
1: Well, we're so concerned with the hell to come, we don't give a rip about the hell that people are in right now.
2: Right, or even, or so, even the heaven to come. Right, this or even the heaven that, to come. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you're right. This, this, by the way, this was the original deconstruction piece for me. Was this whole thing about you know somebody helped me see that the gospel wasn't about saying a prayer so I'd go to heaven when I died, and that blew my mind. Like, what do you mean that's not? that what else is it right and my friend goes well no it's um the gospels the gospel that jesus preaches in the gospels matthew mark luke and john is the kingdom of god is you know repent metanoia think differently the kingdom of god is here now it's within you it's close enough close enough to touch it's about the kingdom happening now you can experience the kingdom and in and, and the sense of you can live right now in the presence of god in the rule and reign of god in your own personal life uh you can you can do that right now and so it's that is the most radical thing about what jesus came to communicate and so when we reverse engineer you know uh, the gospel and we say oh no it's still about the heaven the, the heaven which is coming after i die well you've just negated everything jesus said you've erased the whole the most radical thing he was trying to get us to metanoia to think differently about We've, we've pushed it off. Oh, yeah, it's about when you die. Jesus said, like, No, it's not about when you die. He, he, almost, he doesn't talk about anything really after you die. Everything he's talking about is living your life right now. How are you following? You know, Jesus' whole thing is like erratically about, you know, uh, don't call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say, right? The, 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 one, the one who built his house upon the rock is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice, right? It's so much about. Are you going to follow my example? And that's where it happens. And you either and if you do that now, you're experiencing the kingdom. But if you don't, if you're waiting for some other thing to happen, well, you're not in the kingdom yet. But that's you you know what I mean. Like we're keeping people and ourselves out of the kingdom if we act as if these are all things that are going to happen. You know, after we're dead.
1: No, that's that's so that's so good. It's so good because we miss it, you know, so often. And yes. uh, yeah. I feel like. A lot of the reason that the church has advocated its responsibility to care for the poor and to de- you know, to, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked is, well, it, it's all going to shake out in the end. Don't sweat it.
2: Yeah. And the same, the same with caring for the planet, right? Why care about the environment? It's all going to burn. Yeah. We're going
1: to get a new one anyway, right? Yeah. So, so drive it like you stole it, Ricky Bobby. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's a point where you're like, well... It's all within God's plan. So the, the, this planet will last as long as God needs it to. Right. Regardless of what I do to it or don't do to it. And that's just, it's just
1: asinine. But when we get a new one, can can we make some requests? I have a few things I'd sure. like to see not on the new planet. All right. Okay. I, I could I could do without spiders, man. Oh, Why? Yeah, you know, so in my, so do we get the, pr- no. And that, you know, that, uh, jokingly we say this, but then you start to, tra- you, so you start to sort of, Traverse into even some of the other para-Christian theologies. You know, the, the Mormon Church traffics in this whole thing of when you die, you're going to get your own planet.
2: That's I mean, awesome. Get your own.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, there, will there be like like all of the foods I like to eat on my planet? That'd be fantastic. You know, and exactly. not to trivialize that, I don't mean to pick, but but it's no honestly, it's no less absurd. I love that the Christians in my circle that we you know you love to pick on the absurdity of the say the Mormon religion, and you go, yeah, except. In your version of the sub, of the atonement theory, God had to kill God in order to make God happy. Let, let, let's let's really talk about this. So cuz that that's an absurdity that somehow we've still wrapped our heads around that God was so mad at you but still loved you that God had to kill God had to become human so God could kill God and then raise God from the dead so to save you from a God who is theoretically all-powerful and could simply say, "Eh, it's all good, man.
2: And that's the thing. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. Okay. Yeah, so let's do that first. Let's talk about some of the absurdities, you know, an hour <laughs> into the conversation. let <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> this, this could
1: become a two-parter, Keith. I mean, this yeah. is... <laughs> the, uh,
2: the absurdities of Beal substitution, like I've seen some really good memes that are like, okay, so God sacrificed himself to himself to, appe- to appease himself so that he could save us from himself. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, You know, but here's the other thing, too. It's like, uh, again, I talk about in the book, it's like this. And, you know, uh, Brian Zahn does talk about this in the monster God debate. You know, this we made God this volcano God. The, this is really the, the, the ultimate problem. And and I think it's actually a good thing to phrase it this way, because it, it can help somebody who, who thinks penal substitution is the gospel. And they think it does make biblical sense to say to them. You, you believe in virgin child sacrifice. You, you worship a God who looks a lot like Molech and a lot like the volcano God or, you know, the, the God that they worship in these little primitive tribes of Papua New Guinea and you know, South America and the rainforest or something where they have to kill a goat or something. Uh, and you, and, and you want to say, and, and your reaction should be, oh, no, I don't. Well, OK, yeah, I, I know you don't want to. And that's a good thing if you if your reaction to this oh no no i don't believe in that good that's good hold on to that feeling because i want you to see that you do have penal substitution twist john three sixteen, like you just said it doesn't say for god so loved the world it says it wants you to believe that for God was so filled with wrath against the world. God was so angry at the world. God was so disgusted with the sin of the world. He wanted, he had to destroy it. He had to crush it. He had to burn it with fire. Like he just was so angry. And Jesus jumps in the way, takes the beating, takes the bullet. And now the father, oh, okay. I, all right. I love you guys. I forgive you guys. Um, and even to say like, oh, I don't believe in virgin child sacrifice. Oh, let me just ask you something. Do you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Okay, yes, right. He was, so he's he's a child. He's God's child, okay. Do you think Jesus had sex all the time? Or was he a virgin? Oh, most Christians would say, oh, yeah, Jesus was a virgin, right, okay. So Jesus was a virgin, child, and did he need to be sacrificed so that the angry wrath of God could be satisfied? Yes, congratulations. You believe in the volcano God you believe you do believe you have a christianity that that, is, that has convinced you that that is who god is but again i think if you if you put that side by side with what jesus reveals to us about the father the prodigal son the parable is a great example then you'll see no these are not the same this doesn't make any sense this is not who god is right so i think we definitely do need to think a little harder about this doctrine and again i i i get to show in the in the, in the book you know, let's get some perspective on this historically or it, it wasn't until the 1500s that christians believed this when they thought about the God, the cross when they thought about the crucifixion and the atonement you know so there were like six or seven other atonement theories along the line before we got to john calvin's penal substitutionary atonement theory so number one that's not the gospel. Although, or if you think that's the gospel, then you, what you're telling me is God waited 1,500 years to give us the gospel, and he only revealed it to John Calvin. Okay, that's a little ridiculous. So we have to separate atonement theories from the gospel. This is not the gospel. It's a theory, one of many theories of the atonement. Um, and then, again, to me, it's significant, not just that it was it took 1,500 years to be developed as a theory. Cause again, I, I, love René Girard. René Girard is even more recent. So it's not just because something is a recent idea that it's uh, or a new idea that it's automatically should be rejected, but, but it, what should help us is to say, okay, if for 1500 years, Christians didn't think about the cross this way, that should tell me something. And how did they think about it? Uh, because that, and again, Aren't there better ways of thinking of it than framing it in such a way that God is angry and wrathful and he requires, you know, blood uh, and, and some something has to die before he can forgive us?
1: Yeah, I, I I mentioned this to to Brad the other day when we talked to him and I keep bringing him up. I guess I feel like I'm name dropping, but me and Brad talked, you know, and, oh, you, um, and, me and, Brad. Yeah. and you know, Brad, Bradley and myself, um, <laughs> but we spoke about Christus Victor and, yes. um, you know, and so... Brad pushes back with, eh, I don't even consider Christus Victor a theory of the atonement anymore. That is the gospel. Yeah. Either Jesus defeated death or he didn't. Right. I happen to believe he did. And yes. now an atonement theory is just explaining, try attempting to explain the mechanics of how that happened. But we right. still have to arrive at this place where we either acknowledge that Jesus defeated death, plundered hell, death in the grave, or we did it, or he didn't. And so right. whether it's more um You know, whether it's just, um, I forget some of the Abelard's theories or, you know, um, ransom or. There's, yeah, there's so many. There's 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 so many. And and what I find is in every single one of them, there are holes. And I think that's necessarily so when you try to make something that is enigma at its core concrete. Let me, let me put it in. It's like trying to explain, it's like trying to explain the Trinity and falling into every heretical trap that there is, (laughs) right? It's like, there's just no way. Oh, it's like a shamrock. Well, no, it's not. That's right. this. It's like, well, it's, it's like this. It's
2: like water, see? It's 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 a liquid and a gas and a solid. No,
1: it's modalism. That can't be it, right? So,
2: <laughs> so yeah, it's just, again, so this is that's a great point, see? And, and I, I try to point this out in the book as well. Um, there are all these atonement theories, and what they are at best are metaphors. They're trying to say, they're trying to understand something about what's happening on the cross, something about what Jesus did, and they're saying it's like this. And you know, as far as as far as the analogy goes, yeah, it is like that. But it's not sure. all of it. But it's it's not, not. But it's not and, that. And why, and why only take one aspect of it and say it's got to be this and only this? And if it, it can't be the other, like the other seven, right? Like they're all just metaphors. So in one way, it's about him setting us free. Yes. The, again, like, Bruxy Bruxy Kaby talks about this about how like. We get down into the minutia of the metaphor, right? So we say it's like, you know, uh, Christ ransomed us and set us free from slavery. And instead of the point is just you're free, you are set free because of Christ. In other words, camp in there, live in that, live in the conclusion, the point. But instead we back up to the metaphor and we go, well, okay, well, but who was I in slavery to? And how much would it cost? And what were my chains made of? And what was the what kind of slave work was I doing? And what kind of plantation was I like? Stop. It's just a metaphor. Stop trying to work out. It's The metaphor isn't the point. The point is Christ sets you free. And even Paul didn't land on one, right? Right.
1: Paul speaks of this in multiple ways. It right? was like a ransom. It was like a sacrifice. It was like this. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it so often reminds me of conversations I've had with my children. Right. Because don't children do this to you all the time? You say, you know, they want to they want to reduce everything you say to this. Right. So I remember having a conversation with my daughter and she was the man. She's the prime example. I love her. But she's this is her. I said, (laughs) you know, I want to get my place, my children to a place of maturity. Right. Uh where My children will walk through, say, my house and they'll recognize a need and they'll just fix it. Right. So I was trying to get her to understand this. and I was like, well, you walked past these dirty dishes for five days and you never once did anything about it. So I should wash the dishes. Yeah. But that's not the point. The point is I want you to open your eyes and see that you walked past these for four, and they were, you didn't do anything about it. And she says, okay, so what you're saying is wash the dishes. And I'm like, ah, oh. this is exactly what it feels like to me. It's like, listen, you're free. Okay. And it's, well, how? And then you explain it, you go, okay, so it is this, right? So, um, so much of it's been reduced and, you know, we've taken the signpost that points to Jesus and we've made the signpost Jesus and said, that's okay. That's the thing. Right. So, um, I, I yeah. love that you brought up Bruxy cause we're going to, we're, we're trying to get him on the, on the podcast too. Cause he's a, I like, I like, oh, Bruxy. He's, he's a good dude. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. He wrote the forward to the book. I mean, I, I, I really, I got a lot out of it and he, he also points out, you know, one of the mistakes we make when we try to make sense of the cross is we don't listen to Jesus. Like Jesus kind of gives us four or five specific reasons why uh, answering the question why he had to die. Right. And one of the most significant reasons he says is that so that he can draw them into himself mm. and so that uh, this new covenant can be established. Um, you know, th- those are the, again, the most important things that, that ma- the things that only really matter when it comes to this question about the crucifixion, Right. So, you know, if Jesus says his dying was, was the mechanism by which he could draw all, all humanity to himself. Awesome. Again, let's just focus on that. Let's focus on the reality and the fact that now Christ has already drawn all humanity to himself. What does that mean? Let's think about that. Like, again, we get so hung up in the theory and making sense of the theory we missed the point, the conclusion, right? Right. The, the right. So what? And so we. I, I would love to see us transition into, again, you know, we're, we're so focused on sin. And what is sin? And is that a sin? Is this a sin? What's the worst sin? What's the unforgivable sin? You know, why am I a sinner? My Again, I'm, I'm so focused on sin was that the point wasn't the point behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world guess what he did he took them away right Right? god was in christ i love this verse you know paul says in second corinthians i think this is such a pivotal verse second corinthians 5 19 for god was in christ not counting our sins against us but reconciling the world to himself and then the very next verse is and he has given you and i the ministry of not condemnation not sin hunting, defining. No, no. He's given you and I the ministry of reconciliation. So we're ambassadors of Christ. We're ambassadors of reconciliation. Our focus should be on, hey, everybody, God was in Christ not counting your sins against you. And now he has reconciled you. Let's start at the reconciliation part. We're reconciled to God because of Christ. I just want us to get over this stuff and get away from being focused on the thing that has already been dealt with, right? He's taken it away. And so great. Right. Let's move on. And how, does,
1: how does Paul refer to those things? Remember what he calls those things. He says, can we get, all right, let's get past these elementary teachings yes. of forgiveness of sins and healing and this and that. Can we just get on? And like, that's a, I like, like I'll stipulate all of that. We're good. I had a question for you though, because it, it, everything you say sparks a thought in my head. So <laughs> that's sure. awesome, by the way. Um, so if the purpose of Jesus coming was to forgive sins, was there not a mechanism prior to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins? Wasn't that the point of the whole sacrificial system was people were able to have their sins forgiven already? Then what's the point of Jesus?
2: Right. Well, again, if you assume that the whole point...
1: Right. I'm starting with an assumption that
2: I don't agree with, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, but we all do it. So, I mean, I sure. understand it. I mean, I give, I give an example in the book of seven different... Ways according to the Old Testament. I mean, Old Testament, not New Testament. There are seven examples in the Old Testament of God forgiving sins, and they don't involve bloodshed. And so, this the bloodshed and the sacrificial system. Um, again, that was the primitive way uh, of those primitive peoples. That's how primarily how they thought. This will satisfy the angry God if we have you know kill something on an altar and burn it. Yet, there are seven examples in the Old Testament where God says there's a grain offering. He'll forgive your sins. Uh, you know, Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land and forgive their sins. Where's the blood sacrifice there? There's again, oh, on and on and on. So seven different examples in the Old Testament where God just forgives. God says, I, I forgive you. It's okay. So again, um, you know, ultimately, part of what Jesus is doing is, number one, exposing the sacrificial system as a screwed up, messed up system. Not good. Not God's plan. Didn't want it. Doesn't need it. It's not part of God's plan. So, uh, and it's, and again, his whole life is saying, if you want to see what the father is like, look at me. And what does he do? forgive, 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 forgive. He just forgives. That's his automatic response to sin is forgiveness. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we think there needs to be a mechanism. That's our problem. What's the mechanism that if, if I do A, then God does B, and then my sins get forgiven? And God, I think, wants to say, there is no mechanism. I've already forgiven you. I've, I, it's, this is how I respond, right? Yes, you, you make mistakes. Yes, you sin. You fall short of you know, the whole missing the mark thing. But the emphasis, God's emphasis isn't on our sin. And it's, it's, his emphasis is not on our and punishing that. His emphasis is wanting us to get, I'm your father. You're my children. I love you. You know, I sent my son for God so loved the world. He sent his son so that we could be saved, so that we could experience this connection with God. So, you know, again, it's getting off of this, this focus on sin and this needing uh, some mechanism for for sins to be forgiven and just recognize we are forgiven.
1: Love it, man.
0: Love it. Yeah. Well, uh, we've kept you for quite a while. <laughs> 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 so um, all I want to say is uh, if, if, if anyone listening to this has enjoyed this conversation, you need to buy Keith's book. Uh, there's so much more about what we're talking about here in his book. Um, you will not be disappointed if you get this book so rush to Amazon or how, wherever you buy a book and get your copy. Uh, are there ways uh, people can connect with you, Keith?
2: Yeah, uh, so I'm on, uh, my books are on Amazon, Kindle, uh, they're in Kindle and on print uh, as well. Almost all my books are on Audible, the newest book. It takes a while for the Audible book to, ha- to get produced. So it'll be on audio probably in about a month or two. I blog at Patheos, you can that's keithgiles.com, just my name, keithgiles.com, and you can follow my blog. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I do the Heretic APR podcast we mentioned, and also a new podcast called the Peace Catalyst podcast. Um, and you can follow me there. I have a YouTube channel. So if you're, you know, if you want to check out some videos i put up there as well on YouTube and, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's mainly it. I, I, I'm pretty responsive. So if anybody has questions, uh, and you want to post something or ask me something, I'm, uh, if I have time, I'm happy to respond.
1: Well, you're and you're in Texas now, and so am I. So,
2: yeah, where course, are you
1: at? I'm in San Angelo. Oh,
2: wow,
1: cool. So, so people who aren't from Texas are like people who aren't from California, who realize that doesn't mean a whole hell of a lot. No, um, you're still you're still eight hours from me in El Paso. You're like yeah. four hundred plus miles. But yes, um, one of these days, maybe we can connect up in real life, or maybe I'll have you come down and uh, say something heretical to my to my folks. Oh but, hey, man, <laughs> <laughs> that that'd be a lot like of fun. I'm, I'm trying. to, I'd like to. My my plan is that next summer, maybe put a little something together and bring some folks oh, yeah. into San Angelo to, you know, really be something cool. So anyway, with yeah, the back of your mind, I'll reach out to you. We'll talk about it. Um, I'll offer you at least two-star accommodations at the local comfort suites. <laughs> so, you know. You
2: know yeah, I, I have I have done, you know, back before COVID, and I love doing this, you know, I I did get to go and travel and speak and do some different things. And I just, I so prefer... Staying in somebody's guest room. And Absolutely. Like I, the times they put me up in a hotel, it's been horrible. I would right. just let me sleep in a guest room. I'll even sleep on a couch. I, I, I yeah. would just rather do that. John, than, uh, John knows so. what that's
1: like at yeah. my place. So, you know, be careful what you wish yeah. for. I've been there a few times. Yeah. <laughs> but that would be cool. We'll, we'll reach out. Um, uh, make sure you buy all of Keith's books. We're waiting for the box set to come out I don't know I think that's gonna be awesome
2: you see I'll probably next year sometime I have one more book to write in the series don't wait um, don't
1: wait um buy the buy them all and then he'll sell you the little sleeve to put them in so you can make your you own go. box set there, there you good. go but um, <laughs> all of the Jesus on series are fantastic check out the podcasts all the I mean like I said Keith's one of our one of our favorite people and uh Man, it's just every every conversation is just deep and deeper and diving deeper. So we love
0: it. Uh, we'll make sure to link to all of, all of your uh, social media and uh, everything else for you. And uh, again, just thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. Love you, brother. Thank
2: you, man. Thank you guys both. Love it. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast
1: on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.